Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. All right, first, I want to make one thing clear. He never would have gotten that jar open if I hadn't loosened it for him. The second thing is I don't even like cucumbers. Like, they're kind of disgusting. I don't even like pickles. They're cucumbers soaked in evil. Like, who wants to open the jar anyway? I I wasn't even trying. All right. Um, Well, I just want to say it's so good to be together with all of you as a church family. Uh, Those of you in Blackberry Creek... To Calm, Streamwood, Bartlett, St. Charles, uh, it's always good to gather and to hear from God's word. So let's pray as we begin to do that. Heavenly Father, you are the maker of heaven and earth. Everything belongs to you. Every atom in the universe you claim as yours. And that includes us. All of us, all our lives, all our world belongs to you. And so we open ourselves up and say, have your will in us. As we open up your word, God, that's what we want, for you to speak to us and claim the parts of our lives that we haven't been uh, giving over to you. We want you to be our teacher, and we want you to transform us today. So we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would do that. And we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, back in the 1950s, there was a scientist named George Stratton, and he was studying the way our brains process the information that comes through our eyes. And so he would do all sorts of different experiments kind of messing with that. Actually, he did the experiments on himself. He would create all these different kinds of glasses that had all sorts of different prisms and mirrors and lenses that would completely warp the way light came into his eyes. And at first, when he would wear these glasses, it would be very confusing because what the glasses did was they would switch right and left, or they'd give him a view from above his head as if he was looking down on the world. Or they would flip the world upside down. And so it would be completely disorienting as he put these glasses on. What was interesting, though, is that even though at first he couldn't pour a glass of water or uh, shake someone's hand or catch a ball, after a few hours of wearing these glasses, he would begin to be able to compensate. In fact, he would wear these glasses for days, even weeks or months at a time. And after several weeks, his brain had so adjusted to the different perspective that he could do anything normally. He would go through his normal life other than these weird, bizarre contraptions on his face, and he would be totally functional. He could ride a bicycle down a a sidewalk full of people and be just fine. The really fascinating thing, though, is what happened when he took the glasses off. After weeks of wearing these glasses that flipped the world upside down, when he finally took them off, everything seemed inverted again. When he was looking at the world normally, it was all flipped upside down. He actually had to relearn how to see things the way they really were. We're currently in a series called Worldview. And a worldview is kind of our perspective on life, the beliefs and the uh, values that we look at the world through and interpret things through. And our worldviews are kind of like these lenses. And sometimes they help us see our world more accurately, and sometimes they distort our vision of the world. And so what we've been doing over uh, this series is looking at six different worldviews that are very prevalent in our culture and asking the question, how do they help us and how do they distort our vision? And how can scripture correct some of those lenses so we see things the way that they really are? And this adjustment process is sort of like George Stratton taking off those glasses. It takes us a little while to actually see things from a different perspective. We've got to learn uh, to see things from God's perspective. 
Well, today we are talking about the worldview called secularism, secularism. And and I want to define that for you because as I'm talking about it, this is what I'm going to mean by that word. It means excluding God from an area of life or the world. It means excluding God from an area of life. Originally, the word secular just meant the opposite of sacred. So if you had a a religious ritual of some kind, if you used something in that ritual, it was sacred. If you used something for a more ordinary purpose, it was called secular. So if you sang a song that was in this ritual, but then there were songs that you sang in other parts of life, this one was sacred, that one was secular. Uh, In the modern world, the word secular has taken on a stronger connotation. It means an area of life, uh, not just that isn't a a religious ritual, but it actually means an area of life where God is excluded, uh, where we say God is either irrelevant or not permitted to be here. We say this is off limits for God talks, spirituality, religion, and so on. Now, how big that space is depends on who you talk to. There are different forms of secularism, but all Western societies at some level have a secular space. And many non-Western societies are are beginning to do that as well. Uh, From a historical perspective though, this is a really strange thing. Uh, Up until a few hundred years ago, this never happened. Every society, every uh, person in history, more or less, believed in some form of the supernatural of God. And they were actually used to having religion and spirituality infused in every area of life. If you just take, for example, the Roman Empire, the world where the New Testament was written, where the first followers of Jesus were living, uh, religion was in everything. It was in their politics. Uh, The emperor had the title Pontificus Maximus. That means high priest. He was not just the person who enforced the laws or led the army. He was actually the leader of the Roman religion. And sometimes he was actually considered a god. Uh, Religion was in their economics, so uh, every job had a patron deity, and you prayed to that god, and you did your work in honor of that god. Uh, Academic life, whether it was math or rhetoric or literature or art or science, philosophy, it was all infused in talk and thought about the gods. Your family life would have been full of religious activity. In in some ways, our modern idea that there are some areas of life over here, and then there's religious life over here, that didn't exist in the past. Religion was sort of like language. It was just a part of every aspect of life. You just used it all over the place and you didn't make a distinction. The change didn't come until about the 16th or 17th century uh, because what happened was there was a shift where people started to see uh, that there was uh, a reason to have kind of a neutral space in society. Uh, People started to look and say, we need to have an arena where uh, there aren't religious commitments here. Remember, uh, America was the very first nation that was ever founded that did not have a state religion. All ancient societies, they they served and worshiped gods in their their government. Uh, In in Europe, they had state churches. But the U.S. was the first place where God is not mentioned in the Constitution. uh, And the only time religion comes up is to say that the government can't take sides on religious disputes. But that was fairly recent in human history that a society like that came about. It was the very first time we ever had officially secular space. Now, most of us, since we've grown up in this sort of situation, we feel like this is natural and normal, but it's actually not. When you actually turn to scripture, what's interesting is there are no people living in a secular society, and so there are no places where it actually says, well, here's how to do it. But we do actually find some wisdom about how to live out your faith, how to speak about your faith in spaces where people don't want you to. 
Uh, and so we're actually going to look at the New Testament letter of 1 Peter. Now, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, and we're going to be talking about a group of people here who, they, they lived in what is now modern-day Turkey. They're a small group of Christ followers, but they're getting a lot of pushback from the people around them. And so Peter is writing to them to say, here's how you live out your faith in a place where they say, please don't do that. Not just please, they're, they're being a little bit more forceful than that. We're going to read two sections of the book of Peter, uh, part in chapter 2 and part in chapter 3. So let's start in 1 Peter 2, 9. It says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Now turn to chapter three, the next page, verse 15. It says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Now, I know there are some of you who don't know what you think about the Bible yet, but I'll tell you this. Many of us around here have found that when we read these ancient words, amazingly, mysteriously, we hear the voice of God. So we like to thank God for that. So let's do that now. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Originally, when I put this message together, I was going to have us go through three different forms of secularism, which is why there are three headings in your outline if you're following along in the weekly welcome or on the app. Uh, but I kind of did a revision and completely blew that out of the water. And so some of you are going to be really frustrated with me. Um, and so if you're the sort of person who get, just gets agitated by empty blanks, let me at least give you the first one, okay? I was going to have us talk about all life without God? What does it look like to have all life without God? Basically, this was going to be a, a point about atheism or agnosticism, where someone says, the, the secular part of my life is every area of life. God is not uh, allowed here. Uh, the reason I'm skipping this point is because after I wrote it out, I realized we're going to cover a lot of the things I wanted to talk about in our sermon next week when we talk about the worldview of naturalism. We're actually going to have a guest speaker, a guy named Greg Kokel. He's been here before. He's an author and a speaker, and he's a really sharp guy. And he's going to be talking about the reasons we have to believe that there really is a God beyond the world that we can see and feel and touch. You won't want to miss that. But we're also skipping this point because as I dug into the second point, I realized there was way more I wanted to say about that uh, than I could fit. And so I kind of just expanded that into most of the message. So we're going to move on to that one, which is this. The form of secularism that looks like this public life, public life without God. Now, I, I want to show of hands here at all, all four campuses. Uh, raise your hand if you work with someone of a different religion, who has a different religious background than you. Okay. I, I want you to raise your hand if you have a, a personal friend of a different faith. Okay. Raise your hand if you have someone in your family that is a, a different faith background than you. 
Okay, I want you to realize just how bizarre that is, that there were so many hands that went up for each of those questions. Historically speaking, this is a weird phenomenon. Because uh, most of the time, it, whatever uh, religion, faith background you had, it was probably the exact same one of most of the people around you. You would grow up in a community where everybody basically believed the same thing, and it would be very rare to encounter someone who had a very different uh, perspective on religion than you did. Uh, there are some places in history, places like Roman cities, like we talk about in uh, the New Testament, where there's a lot more pluralism. But most of the time, you had a, a limited set of religious options. And a lot of times, there are variations on the same thing. So you have the Lutheran church over here, and the Baptist church over there, and the Catholic church over there. And they're all basically into Jesus. They're just into him in different ways. But in the age of global communication and easy, cheap travel... Every one of us knows someone of a different religion. In just a few seconds, if you grab your phone and you just go to the Wikipedia article on Buddhism, you will have more information on Buddhism than all of the libraries in Europe combined during the Middle Ages. The number of philosophical religious options that individuals have to choose from is astounding. And this means two things. First of all, it means every one of us has to make a personal decision about what we believe. We, we've got to commit. Long gone are the days where you could just say, well, this is what my family and my community believes. I'm just going to ride on the coattails of that. And this is a good thing because God wants us to say, make a commitment that you mean, that, that's really yours, that, that you're all in on. Don't, don't just uh, sort of uh, draft behind other people. Actually say, Jesus is my Lord, my Savior. That's what God wants. But this comes with some negative side effects as well. Uh, first is this, uh, if you choose what to believe for yourself and you know that there are other options, it leads to doubts in the back of your mind. You always know you could have done something different, right? It's sort of like if you go, to a, uh, you go over to someone's house and they serve you a bacon cheeseburger. You say, oh, this is great. I love cheeseburgers. This is fantastic. But if you go to a restaurant, you got a big menu and you still decide you're going to order the bacon cheeseburger, you get the cheeseburger. There's a little bit of you in the back of your mind that thinks, you know what? I wonder if it would have been better if I got the fish tacos or the pot roast or the wings. Like maybe there was something else on the menu that would have satisfied me more. Did I make the right choice? The same is true with our faith commitments. Modern people, by and large, no matter what their religious background, struggle with questions of, do I really believe the right thing? Or is there another option? Maybe someone else got it right. We all deal with that because we know of all of these options. The other side effect of this is that now in public life, there is no consensus on the ultimate questions. You cannot assume that other people believe the basic things that you do when you're in a conversation about a public issue. And this is actually where secularism comes into play because secularism is a response to this pluralism. Because if you're a Muslim and I'm a Christian and they're an atheist and this person sort of just dabbles in spirituality and none of us can see eye to eye, secularism says, you know what would be best? Just keep those perspectives out of the conversation. If we bring that in, we're just gonna fight about that. We'll never be able to agree. So just leave God, religion out of the public conversation. It's not allowed here. Let's just come on this neutral territory and, and not talk about those things. Let's just talk about things we have in common. Now, there's a lot about this that is, is really good, but it raises a couple of problems. Uh, one in particular for followers of Jesus. It conflicts with our, our calling as Jesus' followers. Look again at 1 Peter chapter 2, 9. The passage describes who we are and what we're called to do. It says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, 
that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Those phrases, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You know what those are? Those are titles given to the nation of Israel back in the Old Testament. And what's going on now is that Peter is applying them to anybody who believes in Jesus. He's saying, you don't just have to be a part of this one national group. Anybody who puts their faith in Israel's Messiah is included in God's chosen people, the people of God. But what's interesting about these titles is they are not a description of something you can do in private by yourself. They describe us as a nation, as a nation. We are a public community living out a way of life before a watching world. And our job as that community is this, to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And when it talks about declaring praises, it does not just mean what we've been doing in this gathering singing praises to God. It it means telling the world what Jesus has actually done and rescuing people. We are a public community with a public message to proclaim. To to not speak about God in public life uh, would be to uh, deny our calling. It would be like saying, you know what? We're a band, but we never really play music. It's like, well, no, then you're not a band. Like that's that's the definition of it. You're, you're, You're going against what that means. The second problem with excluding God from public life is this. Religious neutrality, religious neutrality is impossible. It's actually actually an illusion. Uh, Let me explain that. Part of being human means trying to figure out these big questions in life, you know? Like what what kind of world do we live in? What what does it actually mean to be human? What what, what makes for a meaningful life? What is right and wrong? How should I actually live? Where are the values? And we've got to answer those questions. And the way you answer those questions is bound to affect every area of your life and every aspect of the world, including the big public conversations that people are having. I mean, think about the public uh, discussions uh, that are going on all the time in our society about abortion and marriage and gender and human rights and diversity and immigration and war and welfare and criminal justice and religious liberty and on and on. Don't you think that those big questions about who we are and why we're here and what the world is like factor into those issues? They have to. Now, you may not describe yourself as religious, but those questions are what we traditionally have associated with religious questions. So your religious perspective is going to factor in to public debate. If you're playing a game of basketball, you want all the teams to have the same rules applied to them, right? You want the baskets to be the same height. You want the hoops to be the same size. You want the refs to treat each uh, team fairly. That's what you want, a a fair uh, playing field for everybody. This is what secularism does at its best. It makes it so the game is not rigged, that, that society is not favoring one religious group over the other, so that all of us can join together and have discussions and debate uh, and, and express our viewpoints together. That's a good thing. But imagine playing a game of basketball where the, one of the rules was you could not wear your team's jersey, and in fact, you could not even tell anybody what team you were playing for while you were on the court. Now, what would happen in that game? It would be completely disorienting, right, at first. It would be totally confusing. You'd try to figure out what was going on. But eventually, it wouldn't really matter, would it? Because the people who knew what team they were playing for would begin to behave in a way that served that team's interest, and they would start playing exactly the same. You'd figure it out, even though no one actually said what team they were playing on. Neutrality in that situation is an illusion. It's a lie. It doesn't actually exist. 
This is where secularism kind of gets wonky. It doesn't work so well. When it says, don't bring your perspective out into public, don't show your team colors, try to pretend like you're neutral. Secularism is good when it provides a neutral playing field and it is bad when it tries to create neutral players. We're actually better off as a society when people can say, you know what? Because I'm a Muslim, this is what I value. Or because I'm a Christian, this is something that matters to me. Or because I'm an atheist, this is the way I see the world. Because then at least we know where people are coming from. We're having an honest conversation about why we think what we do. Now, let me make a couple of things clear about this. This does not mean that people with different religious beliefs will never see eye to eye on an issue. In fact, I think there's going to be a lot of overlap between different groups of people. Uh, But if a Muslim and a Christian and an atheist all end up in the same position on an issue, my guess is that they came to that position from different, for different reasons that are based in their different worldviews. And it's important to know that. The other thing that I wanna make clear is it does not mean that two people with the same religious beliefs are always going to approach every public issue the same way. In fact, the opposite. There's gonna be plenty of debate within the Christian community about most public issues, about what the best position to take is, about how to go about promoting those positions. But even so, if we cannot talk honestly about the roots of why we hold those positions, we'll never be able uh, to figure things out. You've got to bring your ultimate commitments and beliefs into the conversation. And so here's the thing. The question is not whether or not you will bring your religious views into public. It is how you will bring your religious views into public life. And this is where this passage in 1 Peter is really helpful. Uh, For those of us who uh, follow Jesus in this world, it is really hard to know how to express your faith, how to bring it up, where to bring it up. It, it feels awkward, doesn't it? To, to say, this is, this is my perspective because of what the Bible says or what God says. You, you feel like you're, you're making people uncomfortable. You feel weird. You just don't know how to do it. And so we need some guidance, some wisdom. How should we talk about God in public life? Look again at chapter two, verse 11. It says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Here's how we should talk about God in public life. As engaged exiles, as engaged exiles. This image of exile is used all throughout the Bible. Sometimes it's talking very literally. It's talking about the people of Israel who were taken captive and exiled to Babylon. They're living in a place that is not their home. But a lot of times it's used as a metaphor for the condition that God's people always find themselves in no matter where they're at. It's a way of saying that we are always, at a fundamental level, outsiders to the world that we're in. We are citizens of a different kingdom. We are members of a different society. What's interesting for us is that our exile is not an exile of place. It's an exile of time. It's interesting. When Jesus returns, he is not going to take us away to another place to go to heaven, to go to his kingdom. What he's going to do is actually transform this world, this place, into his kingdom. This is where we're going to be. It just hasn't happened yet. So our exile is not about place. It's about time. We're actually sort of citizens of the future. Uh, One of my favorite TV shows is a show called Continuum. And uh, you don't have to guess. It's a sci-fi show. Uh, It is about a time-traveling cop. Okay, This uh, cop from 2077 uh, gets stranded in 2012 by accident. And she doesn't have a time machine to get back to her time. And so the entire show is her kind of going through different situations where she is making her decisions based on what she knows about the future that is coming. So all of her motivation is based on what she knows will happen and what she wants to happen in the future. 
And so her decisions, sometimes the very best decision she can make is to partner with the existing systems and structures and groups of people. She sees the, the, the cops in, her t- in 2012 doing something that she knows is gonna be really helpful for the future, so she partners with them. But other times she realizes no one has the perspective that, that she has about the future, so she's gotta do her own thing on her own and, and sort of be at odds with the system. But always her home, her heart, is set in the future. This is how followers of Jesus exist in our world. Uh, There are times when we say, you know what? The vision that we see of the future that is coming, the the kingdom we know is gonna happen and desire and long for, that means what we do is we partner with, with the existing groups and people and systems and structures because they're in line with those purposes. And there are other times we say, no, we've gotta be out of step with that because we've got a vision of something different that you don't even realize is going to happen. So we live this sort of exilic here but not here at the same time sort of life. What this means is that we can never see any government or political party or social movement as ultimate or ideal. We've always got to be careful about this, not to identify God's kingdom with any nation here and now. God's people right now are scattered across every nation and culture, living as foreigners in every society. It also means that we should never feel at home in any political party or movement. As followers of Jesus, we, we, it should be natural for us to critique every political party and position, even the ones that we like the most. Here, here are two facts that should be obvious but are actually pretty controversial, okay? Here we go. The Republican Party gets a whole lot of things wrong and the Democratic Party gets a whole lot of things wrong. Now I say that and some of you are like, yeah, that kind of makes me cringe a little bit. And others of you are like, well, yeah, that, that should be obvious, but it sort of gets you like, oh, is he really saying that? But it shouldn't surprise us at all. If a political party got everything right, they would be the kingdom of God, but that isn't here yet, so they obviously get plenty of things wrong. When you think about the things that Christians should care about, according to scripture, think, think about this list. We are supposed to care about the lives of the unborn and the lives of the poor. We're supposed to care about religious liberty and freedom, and we're supposed to care about creation and the environment. We're we're supposed to care about marriage and family, and we're supposed to care about racism. We're we're supposed to care about uh, criminal justice, and we're supposed to care about immigrants and refugees. We're supposed to care about individual responsibility, and we're supposed to care about just social systems. Now, as Christ followers, when we look at that, I don't think we're all gonna agree about how to play those out in, in society. We're gonna have different approaches to those things. But if we're really taking all those things seriously, don't you think we're gonna look at the political options we've been given and say, yeah, none of them really satisfy. None of them really capture the kingdom vision. As subjects of King Jesus, we do not belong to the party of the elephant or the party of the donkey. We are exiles in every political party because we belong to the party of the lion and the lamb. Here's another thing about being in exile. It means that we are never tossed around by the ups and downs of public opinion, of the political scene, of social movements. We can be happy or we can be disappointed when laws are passed, when people are elected, when decisions are made by courts. We can applaud or lament social trends as they come and go, but we should never be filled with hope because something happened or crushed with despair because something happened. We gotta remember, we are playing a really long game here. 
We're citizens of the future. And so we know how this ends. And our, our horizon is not the next two years or the next four years. It's the next billion years, guys. We know that we're talking about something that is much, much further than just the ups and downs of American or world politics. And as exiles, here's a really key thing. We do not expect at any time in this world to be given special treatment. We say this a lot around here. We know we are not the home team in our culture. We don't need laws or public opinion to favor us. In fact, we expect resistance. Uh, the, the Christian movement began as a minority faith in a massive empire that didn't like them. So we know that followers of Jesus can thrive as exiles. But here's the key with all of this. Even as exiles, we are engaged exiles. We, we don't just withdraw from public life. In the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet writes a letter to a group of exiles in Babylon. And this is the advice that he gives them. He says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. That's the key phrase. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. As exiles in a secular society, we don't just huddle up and take care of our own. We seek the prosperity and the peace of the city and the nation and the world that God has placed us in. We are engaged exiles in public life. But there's a second way that we're told here about how to engage in public life, how to talk about God in public life. Look again at 1 Peter 3.15. It says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have but do this with gentleness and respect. So when we go into public life and we talk about God, we need to do so with reason and with respect, with reason and with respect. And that probably means it's not happening very much on Facebook. This is something that is missing from our public conversations across the board. It doesn't matter if you're a Christ follower or not. Don't you feel it? Like in society, the hostility that has been ratcheted up, it's out of control. And it's wearying when people talk about their views. The, the thing that makes me sad about this is that followers, followers of Jesus are, are contributing to the problem. We're not necessarily helping here. I doubt that the words gentleness and respect are the first thing that come to mind when most people think about Christians. And that's a problem. What do we do about it? Well, I'll tell you what we don't do about it. We don't stop sharing our perspectives on things. Uh, some of us, we need to settle down, kind of chill out. We're being obnoxious. But the verse says we've got to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. God wants us to tell people why we think and live the way that we do. Here's what I think the problem is. I think the problem is that the majority of followers of Jesus are actually really respectful, reasonable people. I, I know you guys, you're great. But what I think is most of the people who are getting most of the attention and talking the loudest are the least respectful and the least reasonable people among us. I've used this illustration before, but it really helps me. I think it's sort of like being in a choir. It's 100 people in this choir. And five of those people, unfortunately, are pretty tone deaf. But those five people think they can sing, so they're belting it out at the top of their lungs. And so you can hear those screeching. The other 95 people who can actually sing fairly well uh, are hearing those people, and they're just mortified. 
They're looking out at the audience and they're embarrassed at what, what people are hearing and they're just cringing through every note. And so because they don't want to be associated with the five tone deaf people, they have just stopped singing and they're just standing there. Now, what should that 95 people do? What they really should do is not stand there silently. What they should do is sing out louder. They should sing the beautiful song that they've been given in the very best way that they can with confidence. Because what will happen? Probably they will drown out the tone deaf people. And sure, some of those off notes will still come through. But maybe even some of those tone deaf people will get on pitch when they hear the other people singing in a beautiful way. That's what we need to do. Not withdraw. More of us need to talk about our beliefs, not less. But we need to do so in this reasonable, respectful way. Now, uh, I've talked about politics a bit today, but I don't think this is all just about uh, politics and public issues like that. I think it's also in ordinary day-to-day life sorts of things, the sort of stuff you would probably be talking to your friends and neighbors about anyway. What I'm imagining are Christ followers who don't just share what's going on in their life. They share why they live the way that they do. So think about it like this. Uh, If you're a parent and you're talking to another parent, and you're describing what you're doing with your kids. You don't say, you know what, I signed my son up for a nature camp later this summer. What you do is this, you say, you know what, I'm really excited to send my son to this nature camp because I really want him to see just how amazing the world God made is. Or when you're talking about your health issues and you're talking about how you're getting through this, this tough season, don't just say, you know what, this has been really hard, but we're gonna make it, we're gonna get through this. Say something like, you know, this has been really challenging for us but it has been such an encouragement to know that I can pray to a God who actually hears me and cares about me. And that's actually helped me get through moments when I thought I'd never make it. Or or when you're talking about a TV show that you like to watch, don't just say, yeah, it's a really good story. I really like the characters. Say something like, I love how the characters are wrestling with difficult decisions, like how to to do the right thing in a a tough world. It really helps me see how hard it is to know what's right in a world that's been messed up and corrupted by sin. Or if you're talking to someone about at work, about a coworker that's difficult to deal with, and you say something like this, you know, I know that what she's doing isn't right, and I'm trying to be patient with her outbursts, but you know, I've been working hard because I know what it's like to be forgiven, and I just want to pay that forward to other people. Now, some of those things you think, I don't know if I could ever say something like that. But that's the courage that we need to have to actually share our why of how we live so that we can actually tell people, not in a pushy way or a forced way, but just an honest way to say, this is how I think through my life, to actually say those things. And the more we do that in sort of natural conversation, the more it'll be that the voices that people hear from Christians are not just the harsh, crazy voices that are out there that make good TV but bad witnesses. It'll be the respectful and reasonable people. And then we'll be in good practice for when we need to speak into the bigger issues in society. Uh, Historically, Christian reasoning in the public square has actually been a really good thing uh, for all sorts of people. I mean, the, the, the marquee example of this is Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, think about what he was doing. He knew that he was appealing to people who did not all share his Christian faith. But when he said, here's why I'm doing what I'm doing, what did he do? He quoted the Bible. He, he, would, he would appeal to distinctively Christian beliefs. He would say, I'm doing this because all people are made in the image of God and deserve dignity and respect. He, he would uh, talk about Jesus who came to set captives free and to bring justice to the oppressed. Not because uh, he knew everyone wasn't a Christian, it didn't make him say, well, I'm gonna uh, keep that out of it. He says, no, I'm gonna tell you my religious perspective even in the public square, and it was a good thing. In secular society, when we're told to leave God out of public life, we need to share our views reasonably and respectfully. 
Here's a third way we talk about God in public life. Look, look at chapter three, verse 17 again. It says, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. This is the only way, the only way we're gonna get a hearing from secular society. If our views come with sacrificial service, in a world where there are so many different beliefs out there, the question everybody's gotta ask is, how do your beliefs make you treat people who hold different beliefs? How do your beliefs make you treat people who don't hold the same beliefs as you? And I think that in this situation, Christianity ought to shine. I mean, think about what Jesus did. Jesus didn't insult those who disagreed with him or call them names. He didn't resent them. He didn't just ignore them and write them off. He died for them. He died for them. We belong to a kingdom that was founded by a king who sacrificed himself for people who were different from him, for people who resisted him, for people who hated him for his beliefs. And you and I were some of those people. This is the heart of our faith. It is this sacrificial love that actually drives us into the public square. Most of the time, when groups of people or individuals are, are engaged in a public conversation, they are fighting for their interests. They're fighting for their rights. They're fighting for their group, their tribe. But followers of Jesus, we can do the exact opposite. Jesus has already met our needs. He has secured a kingdom for us. We don't need to worry about that. So when we engage in public life, uh, we can do so not fighting exclusively for us. Uh, unlike other groups, our goal is not to protect or defend our privilege and power. Instead, what we do is we look out for the good of our neighbors, for the people around us, because that's what Jesus did for us. Uh, we should be the very first group of people to speak up about the religious liberty of non-Christian groups. We should be the first to champion the needs of the weak and the vulnerable. We should use whatever influence we've got to speak up for groups that don't have a voice, to give power to the powerless, to look out for the overlooked. Even on a smaller scale, when you're not talking about public issues, don't you think that our non-Christian neighbors and our coworkers and our family members would be a lot less annoyed of us talking about Jesus if they knew that people who talk about Jesus are also the very first people that are gonna be there when you need them? Like these are the people that are gonna sacrifice for you. These are the people that are gonna serve you. They're gonna be there in your time of need. And I don't, I don't care if what they believe is kind of weird. They're the people that I'm gonna to look to when I'm in trouble. This is actually how the Roman Empire was won over. Uh, followers of Jesus back then, they earned a reputation for taking care of the sick during plagues and giving up their food during famines and taking in widows and orphans in distress and not just other Christians. The, the Romans thought Christianity was insane but they thought Christ followers were the very best neighbors. Secularism says, keep your deepest convictions out of public life because it's only gonna cause conflict. But the gospel says, our deepest conviction is that God laid down his life for us so that we can do the same for others. How could we not bring that into public life? Before we finish here, I wanna address another form of secularism here. And it's one that should cause you to reflect a bit more personally. Because I want to ask you the question, is there an area of your life, your personal life, that is without God? Most of us here would say we are followers of Jesus. We believe in God and we want to follow him. Yet I wonder if there are areas of your private life where you are functionally secular, where you've said, well, God can be in this part of my life, but not this part of my life. Look at chapter 315. It says, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. This is what it means to be a Christ follower. We say, Jesus is Lord, Lord. 
He calls the shots. He's in charge. And we don't get to pick and choose what areas of our life he is Lord of. He can't be excluded from any of it. But maybe, maybe there's a place in your life where you're saying, I'm trying to keep God at arm's length and you're functionally secular. But what is that area for you? Is it your dating life? You say, you know, I'm dating someone who doesn't follow Jesus and I know I shouldn't do that or are there things we're doing together that really we shouldn't do or uh, you know we're, we're both believers but we never talk about spiritual things are you functionally secular in your dating life or maybe it's your parenting. You, you always make sure that your kids are, uh, are doing their homework and they're getting to their practices and they're doing all the uh, things that are going to improve them but when it comes to praying together talking about scripture going to church you say yeah I don't I don't really want to push there you know I don't, I don't want to you know shove that on people. You're functionally secular in the way that you're parenting. Or maybe it's how you view your retirement. You're preparing to retire or you are retired and you think, man, this is a season I've been looking forward to. I've got plans for this, things that I wanna do in this time. But you've never stopped to ask the question, God, what do you want me to do with this season that you've given me? What is your will for my retirement? But you're functionally secular in it. Or maybe it's with your money. You know, the Bible's got a lot to say about how you give and how you spend and what you should do with it. And you're just like, no, I don't wanna hear it. Or it's with your friendships, or maybe your emotional life. You just won't let God touch something, or your entertainment choices, or how you eat, or dress, or spend your time, or any area of your life. Jesus is Lord of it all. Are there places you're excluding God? We're about to celebrate communion together as a church family. And this is when we look and see that Jesus gave himself for us. He gave all of himself for us so that he could have all of us for himself. And as we prepare for this time, this is what I want us to do. I want us to actually take a moment to reflect and say, what are the areas of my life I need to hand over to God to trust him with? And here's the really, really good news about this. As we come to communion, what we see is the God who is willing to break his body and shed his blood for you and me. And that means that he really, really loves you. He really does. And so if you're holding back a part of your life from him, you're holding back uh, yourself from someone who cares about your deepest needs, who, who not only cares about them, but is willing to go to the utter depths to meet those needs, that he loves you so much he would sacrifice himself. That is someone you can trust with every area of your life. Will you let him be Lord? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the Lord. You are the King over the entire world, but also every area of our life. And so God, we we confess that there are areas of ourselves that we have kept back from you and we wanna surrender those to you now. We confess that to you. Jesus, we are sorry that we have been functionally secular in these areas of our lives where we have tried to keep you at arm's length. Forgive us, God. We're wrong. God, we we invite you into those areas, whatever they are, have your way. That we know that you love us and that everything that you call us to do is for our good. And so we surrender to you those things. 
God, we pray that you would prepare us to receive communion, that we would experience your grace in this and know that this is how deep you love us. And I pray that you would help us love you in return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.